0: Hi, and welcome to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast exploring the weird and wacky world of venture building. Together, we'll interview founders and corporate innovators to explore venture building from all angles. Welcome to this episode. I'm Hattie Willis, and today I'm with the awesome Caroline Gross, founder of SmartSa, a video tagging software as a service marketing platform. Since founding the company in 2014, Caroline has raised 630,000 pounds and attracted huge brands including clients like LVMH, Bulgari, Coles, M&S, Jaguar Land Rover and more. Their product boasts incredible engagement rates compared to standalone video, with campaigns getting 40 to 70% engagement and 15 to 30% conversion rates. That's often four times higher than normal. In this episode, we'll dive into this marketing technology startup and look at wider retail trends to watch. Caroline, thank you for joining us. So if we could start with the background, how did Smartsa come about? So
1: I guess it came about a little bit by accident as a side project originally because I was working on a video production company making documentaries about fashion and travel and we just wanted people to be able to immediately see more information because it was around the time when a lot of content started to move online it was early days of Netflix and there was that opportunity for interaction and then over time it just completely took over the production side and I think there's a a much bigger opportunity in that field so over the years it's developed from this idea of creating almost like a interactive Netflix to what we have now which is a video tagging platform used by a lot of brands in the fashion luxury and beauty spaces to make their videos interactive and shoppable so it's been a bit of a
0: journey because it makes so much sense when you think about it as a viewer you see something you want to be able to click and go where can I get that And it's really interesting at the moment, have you seen a big change in how brands are engaging with it now that COVID is forcing everyone to just go online and really grow through e-commerce alone?
1: Yeah, so actually the first wave of uptake, we saw around when Instagram launched the kind of shoppable images where you had Mm. the white dots on the images. And I think that really kickstarted that sort of behavior that you expect you can click and see more details and to shop. And now with COVID, we actually grew in volume like 30 times from 2019 to 2020 because there's just huge volume in terms of shoppable video, but also new formats like live streaming. And I think it's quite interesting because also expectation has gone from just doing these really high production campaigns to just doing live streaming where it's it's very casual and you even see luxury brands doing this, which is a really interesting change as well.
0: And so what have been some of the biggest hurdles? You mentioned now customers are expecting to be able to engage in that way. Have you seen a brand needing the customer expectation to lead the charge or are brands ready to play with it as soon as you have the
1: concept live and ready to go? I think it's been a mix of the two. Certain brands were definitely, when we started this like seven years ago, they were very open to testing. Obviously back then you had limitations like you couldn't really play video on mobile and things like this, a different era in a way. But I think definitely having that increase of usage of social media really then translates into e-com sites as well, where it's very easy to then get customers to using products like this. And I think our data really backs that up as well. We're seeing more than half of people who watch these videos, they actually interact with them. So in that sense, it's been very successful.
0: And When you were coming up with the idea and working out whether to pursue it, How much was that instinctive, I think this is going to be the future, why can't we do it already, versus built on a real hypothesis of this is what is going to succeed, brands are going to have to do this if they want to play. How much do you think you're leading that charge?
1: I think my thought process was very chaotic about it in a way. It was very like, there's an idea where I think is so simple. And when you explain to people, it's obvious that, of course, you should be able to click and see more details. And that's what we thought. But I think what I didn't realize at the time that the technology and all the rest of it wasn't really in line with that thinking at that time. And there had been different companies trying to do this probably back even in the 90s in some formats. But the experience was just really clunky and it didn't look good. So I think the advance of the technology has Mm. just completely transformed what we do. And over time, of course, we are now much more structured about how we think about things, but initially it was just a natural thing as part of another project that we then started building on. But even then we went through different routes. Like we initially actually wanted to work with film production companies because we wanted to work with all the costume and art departments to identify what products they're using in product placement and tagging those in video. But then we found so many problems with who owns the content and there's lots of different parties involved from the broadcasters to a production company and so on. So actually with working with brands it was actually a lot more realistic because they own the content, they own the platform, they, their product. So it's, you know, yeah. a lot more streamlined. It's a simple idea, but when you dig into the reality of executing, it's a kind of worms. Still is today, but we are solving bits of it. So, were there any other big
0: hurdles? Obviously, there were the technical hurdles of, of actually being able to tag. You've gone through, as you said, different iterations. The first step is this beautifully edited video where you can tag it, which I guess was a hurdle at the time. And now you've got the new hurdle, as you said, of people wanting to be able to do this with live streaming as well. How big is the technical evolution of the the product?
1: Been? I think actually one of the biggest things that we've gone through was. When we started off for the first few years, we worked like an agency. So we were doing these custom campaigns, we're building them in-house and we could really hack things and the customer would never know because they only get the end product. As we did more of these, we started getting a lot more demand for a self-service platform. like, we want to tag our own content and we want to log in and we want to see our data. I think actually the biggest thing has been, which we've only just launched this year, is converting it into a self-service platform that is SaaS ready, that integrates into everything that has a nice and easy to use drag and drop interface. And I think it's definitely been a challenge because there are so many complexities in the background of Mm. how do you simplify it into an experience that anyone in a marketing team or digital or agency can just easily use and create these things in a few minutes. So I think not like the sort of deep tech challenge, but more of the architectural system and understanding everything else it has to plug into from mm. product catalogs to analytics platforms to the content and different formats because now you have video and like landscape squares verticals on different channels and we wanted all to end up in one place so architectural and a ux challenge primarily there's been a lot of iterations but we're now quite happy with we where we've gotten it but i think definitely underestimated the process of actually building a tool like this, especially when you have a dev team of less than 10 people. <laughs> it's interesting as well,
0: that the brand needs have evolved to that point where they do you want to do marketing in-house and they want tools to do it in-house as opposed to outsourcing all of those services, obviously some are still outsourcing. For you guys, presumably it's a much more exciting business
1: model when it's a self-service platform, because it's much more scalable. Is more scalable. It's allowed us to move from project-based income into recurring revenue, which gives peace of mind to everyone involved in the business too. And I think also it changes the mindset of our customers away from, let's just do this once or twice a year on a major campaign to actually, we should be using this across all of our content. And like you mentioned, adding different formats, whether it's video or live streaming, and we're also now adding in images as well because actually Mm. there's a lot of campaign imagery that can benefit from this kind of tech as well. It's both from a product and a business model side as well. Uh, It's been a big shift, but I think it's the way to really scale the business at the end of the day. I'm really intrigued when it comes to marketing
0: tech, because I looked at the space very briefly and one of our uh, founders in the studio is deep in this himself. He founded Takumi, which is an online influencer platform. Uh, And... When I saw the space, I was surprised to an extent that it feels quite fragmented. You might go to an agency and they'll work with another agency and another agency. You have multiple tools for different things. Do you think that's the way it's going to stay in terms of single solution tools that they have multiple subscriptions? Or do you think there will be a rebundling of marketing tech?
1: I think there will. And also, one of the things that we have noticed as well over the years is Brands also internalizing certain things. So actually, now we're having conversations about brand using tools like this in-house, whereas in the past, it would have purely been the agency. And also, maybe in the past, it would have been the agencies, maybe they wanted to build something in-house, whereas we are definitely seeing a lot more uptake for agencies as well, partnering with. Smaller companies who have these tools so they can just get these things done quickly. And obviously we are an expert in our particular field and there will be other companies who are experts in other fields. And I think if you want the best outcome, you can use the product for each one that's relevant. And so I think there's definitely a huge increase in using external platforms. And it may be that at some point they will merge or start consolidating if they are in the same space. So that will be interesting to see. I'm intrigued. It strikes me that the next wave
0: that is plausible is a semi-replacement of the agency, where you have a platform that integrates multiple, as you say, best-in-class solutions. So you can still have the experts plugging in. We are phenomenal at tagging videos. We are phenomenal at creating audio content. And actually then for the in-house, because one of the big trends that I was looking at is the first, I think, three to six months after coverage, brands were saying we're bringing more in-house. We we know they don't want to let their marketing teams go, but they want to have much tighter control on those budgets.
1: Do you think that's a trend that will continue that bringing back in-house? I think so. I think also speaking to them, one of the big reasons is obviously one is budget, but another one is also speed. Mm -hmm. If you have the tools in-house, you can get stuff done really quickly. You don't need to wait for someone to edit things and approve and go a lot of back and forth. So I think maybe the role of the agency will change into things that maybe Mm. they don't have in-house expertise in. And then things like this where to tag a video is not that hard to do. So things like that can easily be done in-house, but then maybe the production side of it for certain things, if they want a high production product, then that can be done um, through outsource or running complicated, targeted campaigns and things like Mm. that. But I do think that even if you look at a lot of brands who run this stuff on Shopify a lot of it they manage it themselves uh, because the tools are now really easy to use it's not like before where you had to go into some code so I think these tools are getting better and more user-friendly for people who are not technical in any way. And I guess the more tools become that way the more the expectation is
0: that you do it in-house as opposed to outsourcing. Yeah. I'm curious as well have you looked at influencers themselves as a customer segment because obviously the influencer markets grown so much in the last 10 years even more accelerated than the last five and the rise of TikTok and video content being absolutely at its prime right now is it a platform that you might take direct to influence as well as to big
1: brands yeah it's a really interesting opportunity we've actually explored with a few influencer marketing agencies the issues that we have accounted have actually been related to workflow because mm. you're adding, in addition to the brand and the influencer, and potentially in some cases, an agents you're adding another party into this where a lot of the influencer content still needs to be approved. So you're adding another step where once it's approved, it needs to be tagged and then put back. And then who's going to pay for it? So I think there is an opportunity once that flow gets figured out, mm. both for larger influencers who have a bigger following as well as then the smaller ones it's just it's not been a core focus of what we do but I think it's definitely an area um, in the future that has a lot of opportunity especially as the influencer stuff is so product centric naturally makes sense to tie it into something shoppable and also actually for the brands to be able to measure does it actually work that's obviously a side of it because obviously your self-service platform you've created has a heavy emphasis on those analytics is is for most of our clients definitely one of the core things that they they care about because you can see which parts of certain videos are performing better and having a bit more creative insight mm. because i think as much as video has grown a huge amount there's still a lot of uncertainty on what should i make and what works what should it be like on different channels it's not an easy thing it is still an art form right how do you repeatedly
0: create videos that get engagement one of the interesting trends with tiktok is that anything can go viral
1: It's really hard to predict what will. (laughs) Yeah. Someone from Netflix was speaking about how they're even doing huge amounts of testing on the start screens of the different videos or like what makes people want to watch it in the first place, let alone staying in that content. There's so many creative elements. There's no formula to it of what works and what doesn't. So it's trying to find some sort of a middle ground of what seems Mm. to work for you. And then there might be some peaks in that of things that are exceptional. But yeah, the creative, it's really tough and data can only help you so much with it. One of the things I want to
0: touch on was Generation Z, Generation Z, if you're listening in the U.S. Because that's one of the generations that we're looking at hugely in venture building because they're just growing so much in their consumer power and, and also their influence. And I think they're a really interesting one because they're very young and yet they're already quite involved in luxury. Is it something you look at when you're looking at the platform with a generational influence
1: and how much is that something you're designing for? So our system, we actually don't have access to the data of who the viewers are. So we don't know who they are. I think obviously for them, mirroring the experiences that are on platforms like TikTok mm. as much as possible elsewhere probably makes it more likely that this generation will engage with their content yeah i think also the feedback we have had from testing if they they really if you can immediately see more because otherwise luxury can seem quite unattainable or they don't really know whereas if you can then actually go oh okay it's this bag it costs this much yes it's a lot but actually it becomes a bit more realistic in a way i think definitely having formats like this will help with that and then obviously the other big influences, everything that's happening in China for those brands, but which again is very much in line with that sort of gen mm. um, from here. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it from that lens.
0: I remember when I was the age of a Generation Z, you, you had to go into one of the shops and you felt like you'd be laughed at. It felt like a pretty woman moment if you wanted to go in and look at a bag and you'd look so aspirational, whereas now obviously the experience is totally online, but the more you can bring forward, maybe you can save towards it. Henry thought about it through that lens, making it seem more attainable.
1: Yeah, it's definitely taking it to a completely different place from walking into one of these stores. And the last thing you want to ask is how much something costs or the details about it. And also, really interesting, we've had brands who it's not used for shopping, but it's showing you can click and actually you can see the sketches of the original designs and you can see a bit more, and also using it to give more visibility into the background of how it's all done. Because that's a lot of the storytelling and explaining why something is so expensive. I've
0: seen a lot more of that content in luxury recently on social, the behind the scenes making. Here's someone sketching. It makes a ton of sense when you think that they're trying to engage and keep the attention of an audience who will one day be able to buy. And who needs to have in their head that aspirational, when I'm successful, it will look like this. Putting aside whether our success should be tied to a deal back. For some people, that's how they're picturing it. You're listening to Adventures in Ventureland. In this episode, we're speaking to Caroline Gross, founder of Smartset. If you're enjoying the episode, please do remember to like, share, and subscribe at the end so you never miss another episode. So are there any other big trends in retail that you are watching either to play in yourself or just that you think are really interesting and worth others being aware of?
1: I think one of the really interesting ones is there's a company called Hero. For example, they built a platform that allows customers who are shopping online to actually go on a video call with someone, a store mm. associate. And especially now in COVID, it's given such a great way for brands to first of all, use their retail spaces where people can't go and still speak to customers and by you know increasing their order values by communicating to them directly and explaining more about the products. I think that's a really cool product and super useful in current time I was actually really surprised that in a lot of the world it's very normal to whatsapp people in a store like really it wouldn't occur to me here necessarily but the very one-to-one relationship with people who work at the brand I think all of the tech related to that is really interesting and Mm. a complete shift in the way people shop online we'll see where that goes next
0: I remember five years ago, Omnichannel was the watchword for every big brand. And obviously it still is, but I'm really intrigued. We know COVID has achieved something like 20 years worth of growth in e (laughs) with e-commerce. So it'll be intriguing to see what does Omnichannel look like after COVID, particularly if you think about the the luxury segment where you still want a level of experience. You want it to feel special. You want to feel luxurious. How do you create that investing time in a customer and and how much does that need stores I think will be really interesting to look at as well and what some of these stores do with their spaces my guess is that the spaces will move even more towards experience whether it's bringing forward some of that behind the scenes you can see some of the workshop and then how do you engage I I also think the stores will become content hothouses
1: we're seeing a lot of lines being crossed when it comes to brands doing things a lot of them are now launching their different podcasts and things and even doing little talks and things and inviting people Burberry has a cafe there's a lot of these start to become an entertainment space where the Mm. retail is one piece of it and I think the role of the store again will change in that sense
0: so what's next for smart you've obviously launched the self-service platform this year which is huge
1: What's next in the short term and maybe even longer term? So I think the big focus is now properly rolling out the self-service stuff and including all these other types of content formats because we just want to provide a place where the product can be used in one place for lots of different use cases and on a bigger scale. And then also we're launching a Shopify app, for example. So again, broadening our client base, that vertical in particular, we're getting so much inbound requests for video and interactive. And I think it's also something that Shopify and these big platforms are recommending these Mm. brands do. So it's a new customer segment for us, which is exciting. So those are the focus in the near term. And then we'll see how the market develops from that.
0: And the SME space, is it a very different customer segment? Do they have quite different needs or how much is it a case of expanding on the platforms they're already on today?
1: I think the big challenge with the SMEs is the sales process will be completely different. If we're thinking about it as a SaaS tool that someone will just independently find us online, download their Shopify app and start using it without speaking to us. Whereas now our process is very much, we have a, like an intro calls and demos and we are very helpful. So I think it will be a big change in that sense. And also because we've not really been doing marketing as such. So mm. again, that's going to be something that's going to be needed on how do we even reach these customers? Because it's not with the enterprise, you have a pretty clear list of potential targets and a lot about them. Whereas the smaller brands, there isn't a, an apparent list online where you can start. So I think there's going to be a lot of challenges in that front. And then obviously also then the support and help desk and it's a completely different thing dealing with. So looking forward to challenges that come from that it's a massively
0: growing market so it's a great place to be expanding as a founder if you could share with other
1: founders lessons learned where would you point them to I think the one thing that I still keep going wrong with is estimating how long things take especially on the development side when you're building the unknown it's very hard to estimate but you obviously always want to be really aggressive about it but I think being slightly more realistic probably tripling the time that you think it's gonna take. Listening to your gut feeling when it comes to hiring. If something might be right on the CV, but then it is just not a fit for the team sometimes as well. Mm. When you're a small team is super important to have that side of things. And just really focusing and listening to the customers. Because often you think, oh, we should do something, but then actually if the customer doesn't want it then they're not going to pay for it, you shouldn't do it. So actually, what we've even done now is with new features and stuff, we'll start fishing the level of interest from the customers first before we start building it. Yeah. Because there's some things definitely that we have built that we thought that would be valuable, but actually no one really wants to pay for them. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. The challenge often is even when a customer says, oh, when are you going to do X?
0: Asking them, what do you want X to actually achieve? Because sometimes <laughs> actually they want something totally different to build. It doesn't need to be built now because actually they found a hack and it's fine. It's not as pressing as your other customers' pains over here. So it's such a good thing to be aware of that. That is true. Actually, that is a very valid follow-on question to ask of why do you want this? (laughs) I used to teach customer development. And one of the main things we used to say is don't ask the customer what they want the arrogant way of saying that if they don't know what they want the truth is they do know what they want it's just that they might not express it the way you need to hear it first time around and so I always think your job as a founder is just to keep going until what you need to build trying to get to the heart of what is the priority for the roadmap is so difficult especially when you've got to the stage I think that you're at where you've got loads of really big clients you obviously want to build what they're asking for and just trying to work out what to do first when everything takes longer than you think.
1: Yeah, before we would build quite custom projects where we knew no one else is going to use this again. Whereas now we don't. We'll only do things where there is a use case for someone else as well. Even if it means saying no to a project because it's just distracting.
0: It's such a hard thing to do at the beginning though because you need that focus to know what to say no to. Absolutely. But also you get a ton of learnings from building those first products, much more concierge gives you so much value to understand the why from the customer, because you oh. might build something and then they go, I didn't mean it to do that. <laughs> and you have to start again.
1: Yeah. In the beginning, we had some quite big custom projects and a lot of learning and still some of the features still are in our product now. But yeah, now it's just trying to f- focus on our resources. Knowing when to say no. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I'm always curious about this because in the studio, our model is that we co-invest with corporates where we can unlock an unfair advantage. Now, obviously, you don't need a corporate partner you are doing exceptionally well. So I'll caveat with that. But if you could have any corporate partner and have an unfair advantage from their business to accelerate yours, I'm curious who it would be and what you would want from them.
1: So actually the one that would have some connection would either probably be LBMH or Richmond as a group. Mm. Because for us, having something that has a channel to multiple companies that are all relevant pretty much to what we do. And having that kind of a credibility, if you will, to help you navigate through is always really helpful. And I think having that kind of a big partner would be really great in opening some doors because luxury is sometimes less about your product but it's more about building those relationships and trust and it takes a really long time to do that so having someone behind you who can help you a little bit would
0: be yeah the challenge when you do partner is getting your champion and what they have to be exceptionally good at is convincing the brands to trust you as soon as they can do that then you've got genuinely huge value of your first customers to yeah. test with and to build the product with and to launch. And that's a massive advantage when, as you say, you've got what is still quite a closed and network led market. Thank you so much for your time today, Caroline. We really appreciate it. And I'm excited to see what's next for Smarter. I think some of our startups will almost certainly be using it when we uh, launch our next ones in the retail space. Thank Thank you you. so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Ventureland. If you enjoyed it, please do rate it and hopefully subscribe so we can see you next time we have a Rainmaking Venture Studio podcast.